What's going on, everyone? This is the Founder Hour Podcast. I'm your co-host, Pat. And on today's episode, we sat down with Ellen Marie Bennett. She's a founder and CEO of Headley & Bennett, which specializes in handcrafted premium aprons and culinary gear for the best chefs, home cooks, and makers in the world. Her story is a wild one full of adventure and discovery. So we were excited to get a chance to hear about Ellen's early days, moving to Mexico after graduating from high school and creating a whole new life for herself there, why she decided to move back to the U.S. and pursue a career in the culinary world, what sparked the idea for Headley and Bennett, and some of the early challenges she had while launching the company. We also talk about the impact of COVID-19 on the business and what she believes the future of food and hospitality will look like. Here we go. Um, so I grew up in LA. I'm from Glendale. And when I was a yep. Love it. Whoa. Love it. Whoa. <laughs> Great Whoa. way to start Did that. Not expect Whoa, that. I know. Totally unexpected. What are you part Armenian? I'm not, although well, I you are today. a lot of people think I, I was. I <laughs> Where guess. did you go to school? Um I went to a little school in La Cunada. Okay. So, I lived I lived in La Crescenta for a while. So amazing. not too far. Um yeah, so Born and raised in L.A., but I lived for a long, in big chunks, in Mexico. So I'm half Mexican, half English, was born in L.A. Mm. Um, definitely identify with my Mexican side more than my, I guess, American side, if you will. Um, it's just, more, probably more cultural, right? Yeah, it's just <laughs> like it's more colorful and alive and everybody just like really cares. And it's just they're, they are what they are and they're not trying to be something other than themselves, and I really appreciated that growing up, seeing the the difference between my American friends and my Mexican friends. Hmm. And so what kind of stuff were you into as a kid? Like, what did you spend your time doing? Uh, I was definitely unusual. I really enjoyed design. I still do. But my way of expressing design was like going to Home Depot and buying cans of paint and painting my mother's living room um, when I was like 13. So... It was very uh, handyman yeah. <laughs> oriented, I guess, in a weird way. And I loved inventing things in the kitchen. And I just liked doing things with my hands. Like I, I liked just seeing it in my head and then making it come to life. And I did it whether it was with a can of paint or sponge painting my mother's bedroom yellow or going to the grocery store and buying a bunch of ingredients and figuring out how to make that one thing my Mexican grandma made. Like I was just always doing something and trying to figure out how to do something better or growing tomatoes in like massive volumes on my mom's little patio. Like I was just a very active kid and my mom wasn't really into letting us quote unquote, hang out with our yeah. friends. Like that wasn't something that we did. Mm -hmm. We were just all about productivity. And she worked as a nurse. So she worked like 12 hours a day. So she was just constantly hustling at life and just working and trying to like succeed for us. And so we just never really had the, we'd never even thought to not do that ourselves. Ellen, this is a super random question, but you, you brought up the word paint. And right before we were, we, while we were setting up for this episode, we saw this wall, which is for those that can't obviously see us, is just like this wallpaper type of wall that like you could write on. Yeah. Right. So we were talking about the fact that wouldn't it be cool if there was paint that you could just write on and it's like erasable. Oh, so it totally someone, exists. Okay, perfect. There you go. So we were it we thought exists. we thought we were just about to invent something new, but I'm glad you were able to kind of give us an answer. I figured you'd know as soon as you said you were obsessed with paint and went to Hope Depot. I was like, she's got it now. She's got to know that. Yeah, paint connect. Know that. Yeah. It was like all that stuff pretty innate like did you did you like have that in you growing like from like as long as you can remember or was there like a time in your life when you were younger that caused you to be that way I think I just had this very nerdy curiosity about me that I wanted to figure it out and nobody said no you can't so I never even questioned if I couldn't hmm. my mom literally let me sponge paint her bedroom yellow and came home from work and it was yellow. And she was like, oh, that's nice. And that was it. There was nothing else attached. It wasn't like, what? What are you doing? You should have checked with me. Why didn't you verify that the color right. was – Which it, probably is a more common like reaction. A thousand percent. Yeah. And, and anything that I did that was kind of out there, whether it was, you know, one time I tried to make her bagels and I committed to the recipe and I didn't realize that it was like – serving size of 14 or something crazy. And so she came home and the entire kitchen was covered in bagels. But I'm talking plates of bagels, like piles of bagels everywhere. And she was just like, 
okay, cool. Just super chill. Just so chill about it that it just made me think, okay, well, I guess I can try anything and it yeah. doesn't really matter. No one's going to say no. I'm just going to do it. You talk about like being like super in touch with more of your Mexican side and your Mexican roots. Like what – why did that happen? I mean, like, was it something that just you grew up with or was it ingrained in you? I know you were, you are a part Mexican, but yeah. that doesn't always mean that you're like really into the culture. I know totally. a lot of Armenians or Italians that they're just like in yeah, America, they're, like, whatever, they're Americans. They don't yeah, care, yeah, whatever, yeah. you know? But like, what was it about you that made you so, you know, interested and passionate so much so that you went to live there? Right. I think that. Having gone to Mexico for two to three months at a time when I was really young gave me this really radical contrast view on culture. And when you are going to school in L.A. where everyone wants to be an actor and they want to, like, grow up to be a model or whatever the hell it is. And all that is fine, right? But you see that. And then you go to Mexico and my friends barely had floors in their homes and they were running on the streets playing soccer barefoot and like go get tortillas from the corner for lunch at noon and get a giant thing of coca-cola that's in a reusable bottle like everything was so dramatically different and people were so much happier and i could just feel the happiness and as a young kid you don't necessarily know the intricacies of their lives and you know financial statements and all that stuff but i just felt a difference and i what, what do you think it. caused that why were they happier I mean, i'm sure that's probably the case now too but like why is it that you felt that way i strongly believe that their sort of attention and where they were focused in life was was focused on things that didn't have to do with physical you know, purchases. And yeah. if you look at a lot of young kids in the United States, their their lives revolve around what toy they're getting and what sort of accoutrements they have and do they have a pool or a big house or it's a lot of comparison. And I happen to not have to experience that because my friends in Mexico really didn't care what we had or didn't have. It was more like, who's going to win at soccer today? Yeah. Who's going to play better on I'm, the streets? I'm curious though, like more recently, um, has it changed with like social media becoming what it is and people having more of like a window into people's lives and how other people live their lives in other countries? Yeah. Because it's such a small world now, right? Like totally. whether wh wherever you live, most likely, um, you, you know, there's a, there's a window view into that yeah. area. So do you think that's changed at all? Such a good question. I don't know. I, I assume it has changed a little bit, but for me, it hasn't changed my perspective, right? Mm. If anything, it's just amplified the value that I find in people and just having good people around you that are good humans and that care and that do the right thing and that do the right thing when no one is looking, right? Yeah. It's good to say you do the right thing when everyone's watching, but what are you doing behind the scenes? And that's really, for me, a huge differentiator with who I surround myself with. And, and I just have a good egg radar. And so if you have people around you that are doing well in life, like that's awesome, but that shouldn't be the only thing they care about is the doing well in life. Like, do they care about their family and their people right. and their community? Like at the expense of what, right? It, right, exactly. Yeah. You, yeah. There's got to be some sort of a, a balance in it. Agreed. When did you end up, or what part of your life did you end up deciding to move there, Mexico? When I turned 18, I had graduated high school. I was doing all these like random jobs in LA and I loved cooking and I knew I, I, knew I wanted to cook, but I wasn't totally clear on which path I was going right. to take to do that. Also, culinary school is like $70,000. My parents couldn't afford it. My parents were divorced. So my mom was like, that's just impossible for me to afford. So I went to Mexico for two months and I ended up staying for four years. And it was wow. like the best thing I could have ever done. What part of Mexico, by the way? Mexico City. Okay. And did which... you like know anyone there? Like, did you have any no, friends? No, I or... knew nobody. I It was really kind of on a whim. Um, I had a one-way ticket and I thought I'm going to stay probably like one or two months. And I I had a little room in a house with a bunch of other like yeah. students that were in Mexico. I'm assuming it was a really good two months. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't two months that you would expect of me out like raging or something. Yeah. No, I, I just kind of realized like, damn, I'm in another country. Nobody knows me. There's no context here. I can just, just 
build it like I built my mom's room with sponge paint, right? It was yeah. it was sort of similar. Like I just, reinvent myself to start from scratch just like or like figure it n- out no, with yeah. no judgment. Yeah. No one was around saying, Are you gonna be an actress or are you gonna be a model? Are you gonna go to college? What college are you gonna go to? Like all of that sort of disappeared yeah. and it let me start from scratch in a way that was awesome. And I lived there, I got so many jobs, I worked every job you could possibly imagine because of course my parents were like you need to come home now (laughs) and I said hell no I'm staying so they cut me off financially and I literally just like I got my Mexican citizenship I rented a an apartment and then I rented out all these bedrooms sort of pre-Airbnb but I was just hustling and it helped me find my own sea legs so when I came back to LA after four years LA was exactly the same. I had just dramatically changed right. and I it felt like someone had rolled out the red carpet of right. experience right. and I was just like bring it fucking on. Yeah. You know, I I don't want to jump around too much but I know that I want to focus a little bit on that Mexico kind of experience you had but you talk about moving there after high school. You know, what was your high school experience like? Because I know we talked to so many founders and everybody has a different experience. Some of them yeah. knew exactly what they wanted to be. Some of them were dropping out. Some of them were like, I hated school. I hated life. Everything sucked. And now that we know we're multimillionaire founders. But what was your experience like? I mean, I know you talk about being passionate about cooking and mm-hmm. you know doing things with your hands. Were you doing that while you were in high school? Yeah, I was. I mean, again, my mom wasn't letting me hang out, quote unquote. So I would come home and I was doing all kinds of like weird handyman things around the house or painting something or building something or whatever. I was just keeping busy. I started doing my mom's finances when I think I was 14 or 15. I wanted to be like her financial advisor. And I thought that that was fascinating. And um, I was just like trying to learn everything that I could about life. And because she didn't say no to anything, I was doing her bills. I went and found the car that I was going to get when I was, when I turned 16, I like went and found a car, negotiated the car, took my sister and we went and illegally drove the car. The dealership somehow let us like test drive the car. And then I had everything lined up and then I just brought my mom and I was like, you need to sign here. This is the deal that I got. This is the right car. And like, that was how I was running my childhood. (laughs) So really I was in charge and she was there to help me get things done. Right. How did did that make you feel though? Like being almost like the one in charge, even though you were just a kid? I just kind of didn't know any other way. It just it, it just seemed right. And I will say as an entrepreneur, it's kind of the same thing. You're not necessarily, you don't have all the answers and you definitely shouldn't claim that you do, but you just figure it out. And it's this decision that you are taking on that responsibility right. and then you get the answers to it. I'm curious in those years, you know, like you're graduating high school. I'm sure your friends are going off to college and they're, yeah. they've, it seems like they figured it out, right? Like this yes. is what I want to study. This is what I'm going to be. percent. And boom. And you're kind of going off on your own path, going to Mexico. Yeah, to rent four, rooms yeah. for yeah. people like a pre-Airbnb. What yeah. the hell? And, for, and with someone that has like so many interests, how did you figure out eventually like what you wanted to focus on? Like it sounds like you had, you know, you, you like this, you like that, you're good at this, you're good at that. Like how did you try, try to narrow it down or did you like at some point narrow it down and, and go after that? Obviously everything sort of revolved around creating, right? Creating something in my head and then bringing mm-hmm. it to life, whether it was food or painting or whatever. Um, but I always cooked. That was the, that was the like through line in all of this if I was painting, I was also making bagels at the same time, right? There was always some creativity in the kitchen happening. And while I was in Mexico, I decided to go to culinary school there because it just, it made sense. It was less expensive. I had the opportunity. I found the school. I got myself into the school. Like it just, the stars aligned. Mm -hmm. Um, And it did take me trying a bunch of different things to really feel which one gave me the most enjoyment and excitement. Mm -hmm. So while I was living in Mexico, I was like um, the lottery announcer for Mexican, (laughs) like the lottery, the actual lottery, like bienvenidos a su sorteo, tres sexy clásico. Like I was literally the lottery announcer on television. Um, 
And I did simultaneous translating for the Mexican Railroad Union. I was an English tutor. I was, I actually ended up doing modeling. I did commercials. I mean, I did anything I could get my hands on. Wow. But the one thing that I enjoyed the most was when I was cooking. Um, and I enjoyed creating stuff. So I just thought, let's smash those two together. I mean, was Mexico, so I know Mexico City now is like just this culinary, just sensation and Sadly, you know, we were going to go there for my bachelor party. Like, you know, when was that going to be? Like, like around like now, month, sometime. Yeah. 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 Um, so we're not going there, obviously. <laughs> um, but nope. you know, hopefully in the future we'll do a nice, you know, couple strip or something out there. But you know, you have all these amazing chefs there now, like the Olveras of the world, yep. right? And I don't know who else there was. That one lady that I'm blanking on right now, but I know she's from there as well. Um, was that the case back then when you were there? Was like the food scene hot? Was that? Something that was just brewing? Not really. Like, when I was there, it was traditional Mexican. And also Mexico City was a place that you didn't really go visit. Like you live there and it's a very rich city. Like, right. There's a lot of money in Mexico. Right. Despite my upbringing, you know, Mexico is like one of the wealthiest countries right. in the world. Like yeah. some of the richest people in the world Literally, are Mexican. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So Mexico City was was very well to do in that sense. But, but no, not at all. I... I don't think it is – it was a tenth of what it is now. Right. What do you think made it that way eventually? Uh, people, younger people bringing a new lens to a traditional culture mm. and just bringing in other cuisines into the country. And I think for a long time what happened is people would bring – French cuisine or Italian cuisine to Mexico and try to change Mexican cuisine. Right. And instead, what's happened recently is they actually just took Mexican cuisine and improved it and, and like amplified it with organic ingredients and really kind of went back to its own roots right. versus trying to uh, shift it too much. Right. What were you cooking? I mean, were you cooking Mexican food or? When I lived in Mexico, yes. But when I moved back to the, to the States, I was at a two Michelin star restaurant that was like primarily seafood with some Japanese influence, Providence. Mm -hmm. um, and then I also worked at Baco Mercat. Yep. So that was a little bit more on the, you know, Middle Eastern flavors yep. and a lot of pickled red onions and yep. parsley and pomegranates and things and like they, that. I think they unfortunately just closed they down, right? just closed. I know. Yeah. Well, I, was, know. I was just telling Pat that was one of my favorite restaurants, I think like so five, good. six years ago. And then... The owner owns what, like Orso Winston? Yeah, Orson Winston, Barama. Barama. Yeah. 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 So when so you were there four years in yep. Mexico, um, doing everything that you could get your hands on and just just literally everything. It's literally like. hustling. Yes. Um, <laughs> why'd you come back? Well, I graduated high school I high school. I graduated college. I had all this money. I had created an entire life and I was twenty two. And I kind of looked around and I was like, Really? Is this it? all right, you kind of sort of made it here. You're in another country. You figured it out. You've had your head slammed into the fucking ground like 50 million times. You are hella resilient. You have all these things. Is this where you really want to kind of park park mm. it and coast? And like I, You almost like peaked at 22? Yeah. And yeah. I was like, that that's crazy. No. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, you had that, You made that much money to be Relative like, to where whatever. you were, like in the circumstances. Oh my God, yeah. yes. I was making more money than like, banking executives like really? i was really doing quite well for myself just doing all these odd jobs just i had created so many different opportunities for myself in so many different channels it was just like i had 50 fishing boats and then there were all these like right. fishing lines and each one of them had caught a big tuna and they were right. all coming in and it was that's just awesome. i mean that's why awesome. do you why revolving. do you think that i know we, we talked about like just kind of your upbringing like hustle and all this stuff like was was there more to it than that like like you wanted like, was there some other motivation to to be doing all these different things? Well, f on one side, I needed to prove it to myself and to my parents that I could sustain my own in right. Mexico. Mm -hmm. um, and contrary to maybe people's imagination, Mexico City is not cheap. And I really wanted to be able to make it work. And it was it was more thrilling to me to land jobs than it was the actual money coming in. I was just excited that I had so many different jobs happening that people were wanting to hire me. And um, it, was a, it was a game. It was a game of like, how many jobs can I get? Mm. How many people can I work with? How many things can I learn? I was just this sponge for experience. And every single experience, even back then, 
they were weird and different and unique. And, you know, one of my jobs was being a booth babe is kind of what it's called, but not in like a bikini for Budweiser, (laughs) more like a suit at a conference where we're talking about, I don't know, it was anything from banking to bulletproof vehicles. And so that experience doing this multiple times a week for different companies gave me the ability to talk to anyone about anything and learn how to get have people say no and how to say yes and just to not be afraid. And right. back then I thought, what am I doing? But I'm so grateful that there was still this inkling inside of me telling me, no, you're actually learning, even though this feels very weird, just don't stop because whatever's happening is good for you. But how'd you have that level of perspective at 21, 22 years old that like, you know, I'm just learning. Like, I, I don't know where the hell I'm going, but I'm learning. Right, because like I think a lot of people, including myself, have had that realization. Sometimes I still have that realization. Yeah. I'm like, I don't know where I'm going. Like, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm doing things. I'm doing a bunch of things. I'm always busy, always doing that. I have a big network, whatever. But where the hell am I going? Right, yeah. like that's like that anxiety or that like unknown. You're like, I like, am I spreading like, myself too thin? Yeah. Am I am I going deep into one particular, you know, career or? path that I could like build in into or am I just like doing a little bit of everything but not really going too deep into it right I really feel that doubt kills a lot more dreams than failure actually does and so when you just try stuff and do stuff and do it for long enough I mean it wasn't like I was just there for two months and I left like I was at it for four years at 18 by myself in a foreign country right. having gotten my nas- my Mexican citizenship, right? So I was mm. committed to having success on the other end of it. Um, I, I do believe that people have different things happen in their life, right? For me, my parents got divorced when I was very young and I was just like, hell no, I'm not ever going to rely on another human to to keep me afloat. Whatever I do, I'm going to find my husband and he'll be with me because I love him and not because I need him. Right. And so there was just this, you know, forward push or inertia from me from within to succeed and to make it in life on my own. And I was kind of having to prove it to myself, not to anybody else. Because, by the way, nobody was in Mexico with me. Yeah. This was like me, myself, and I on this, like, Mexican adventure. Right. I mean, um, do you have any – I mean, did you create any relationships out there? Cause it 100%. Because like, it sounds like you didn't have time to do anything beyond work. <laughs> no, I got a boyfriend. I had lots of friends. I had an entire network of amazing people. Yeah. Uh, and I did so many beautiful things. And I actually ended up getting married in Mexico so many years later, that picture on – the screen is my wedding. Um, So I got married in Mexico City and it was incredible because we had 250 people go to Mexico City for our wedding that are from the U.S. and get to experience what I grew up doing. And you met your husband in in No, he's from here. Oh, he's from here. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so you're 22, you come, you're (laughs) you're a rich person, (laughs) Mexican-American citizen. What are you going to do? I'm not even – Are you trying to retire? Like, what's the goal? No, I came – I sold everything. And what I did, it was one of the most therapeutic experiences I think I've ever had. I let go of everything I had gotten at 22. I I basically, like, sold it all, got rid of my apartment, cut all my ties and all my jobs and did all of that. And I traveled around the world for two and a half months, like, backpacking style. And um, slept on people's couches, like went to Mount Fuji in Japan. Damn. I climbed Mount Fuji. I went to – Alone? Bra- alone. Mm-hmm. I went to Brazil. Like I went to see the Iwazu Falls. I went to freaking Stonehenge. Weird decisions. But I, <laughs> I was just like, Stonehenge, that's something you do when you're on a life journey. It was like eat, pray, love minus the like love part. <laughs> Not a lot of loving happened. Um, <laughs> but it was amazing because it just made me go out and see the world and touch it. And feel it and also let go of all the materialistic stuff that I had accumulated in four years. And it gave me the confidence that if I could do it once, I could do it again. That Therefore, all that shit I had accumulated and I had made was not what made me. I had made it. And if I could make it once, I could make it one more Mm. time. It's like a phoenix. Yeah, (laughs) totally. So so give us like one like distinct memory from that trip. That, like, we should know. (laughs) I mean, one was just so bizarre. (laughs) Uh, When I was climbing Mount Fuji, there were, like, 80-mile-an-hour winds. And there there was a guy on the mountain that I had met who was also hiking. And everyone had evacuated the mountain because no one was nuts enough to keep going during this insane (laughs) 
windstorm and rainstorm and him and I stayed on the mountain and we ran down the mountain at some point because our our lights started to blink at at night and so we were going to not have any power on the side of a mountain our flashlights were going to die so we ran to the bottom of the bath to the bathroom on the bottom of the mountain and slept on the bathroom floor together um and he like tried to make a move and and i was just like nope this is not happening we are on the side of a mountain in a bathroom let's all be nice here and uh just sleep through the night you sit over there and i will be here and the next morning we climbed the mountain together that's great and then we came back down got on the train and I like never talked to the guy again. <laughs> I was like, get away. Thank you for climbing next to me. Goodbye. <laughs> wow. I thought there was going to be a happy ending and like we <laughs> ended up in Mexico City married. <laughs> now, that would have been, that, that been a no, better ending. No, I like used him to get up the mountain. No, I mean, he yeah. was there and I was there. We climbed together. Emotion, emotional support. Emotional support, exactly. Yeah. So that, that was a weird uh, twist. Yeah. <laughs> So you come back from this trip and what do you Oh, it was do? it was the worst hangover of all time. <laughs> not not because I was drinking. It was the worst hangover of life because I landed back in my mom's house. You're like this is it? In her bedroom in my old bedroom and yellow. I was just like <gasps> What just happened? It was like all this big giant blur of life that j- had just occurred and I thought, "No. I'm back at square one." No. Um so I had to shake that off really quickly and just kind of humble myself and realize what I had said, which was if I could do it once, I could do it again. And I just had to build from the ground up. Right. And I, that's when I got my job at Providence and started working at these different restaurants. Yeah. So talk to us about that. You've obviously had done a bunch of things. You loved cooking. But like, why did you want to go back into the scene? Like, I mean, I, I know Providence and all these restaurants or LA became this like spot and hub for great food and great culinary experiences and still is, you know, pre-COVID. Um, but what made you decide that you want to go that route? You know, after all this stuff, after all these experiences, I'm going to settle on the culinary world. Yeah. I know you went to culinary school, but like, yeah. why did you decide that that's what you were going to do? Well, I wanted to have, I wanted to have my own sort of restaurant taco empire situation. Like I wanted to cook, but I didn't want to necessarily do all the cooking. I wanted to have like a, business around it. And I thought, in order to do that, I need to go and get experience in that field. So a friend of mine gave me a list of the top 10 restaurants in LA. And she said, go to these restaurants between two and four, and you can probably see if you can get a job. So that's what I did. And I just went one by one down that list. And I was turned down on eight of them, and two of them gave me the opportunity. And it was Providence and Baco. And Baco gave me this opportunity maybe halfway through that list. And Providence was like four in, but I committed myself to the end. So I like went to all 10 and that was just something I feel like I learned from Mexico. You just show up. Like you don't not go because you got, you got a a hit or you got something that was, you know, close the sale, if you will. I was like, no, I got to get to the end of that list. So I got those two opportunities and then I just started working and literally climbed my way up from there. What were you doing? Like you were a line cook or? Yeah, I was a line cook. I was picking herbs. I was shucking oysters. I was, you know, sauteing razor clams. Like I was just doing anything that they would let me do. And I was learning all over again. I was just a sponge. And I quickly realized I knew very little and that everything I needed to know, I had to absorb by everybody around me. And so I just I took one more bite of the humble pie and really kind of realized where I was at in my cooking career and just did the work. How long? Um, I was there for two and a half years and somewhere along the way there, I started Headley and Bennett on the side and that quickly overtook my whole life very, very rapidly and I was also a personal chef with a family, and I was also working at Baco. So I had three jobs. You know, I couldn't get away from the yeah. multiple jobs. And I I had to keep trimming each job, like, by a day so that I had a little more time to focus on Headley and Bennett until I was 
literally working at every hour of every day, setting up the farmer's market on Sunday at 6 a.m., breaking it down by 2 p.m., shoving everything into my little mini Cooper and driving to Providence, which was five minutes away, and clocking into service by 3 and then breaking down at midnight. I mean, it was just insane. And I I knew it was time. Like, I needed to let go of the safety net of the restaurant world and actually fully commit to Headland Bennett. But this was probably a year into Headley and Bennett, I left what Providence. What year is this? 2012. Yeah. So talk to, us about, talk to us about like what happened like at when you were working um, that you like, like, that you like the idea for Headley and Bennett came to you. Like, what did you see? What did you come across? I am a runner and I do marathons and I just really enjoy that athletic side of life. And when I first started running in Mexico, I went and got an amazing outfit from Nike or Adidas or something. And I put it on and I was like, I'm a fucking runner now. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And I felt so legit and real and proper. I thought, man, if I could make people feel that way in the kitchen, you could like change the culinary world. Like this right. could be something really cool. And Makes you feel official. Like, yeah, you're, like you're the real proper, deal. but also badass. Yeah. And I wanted that feeling for myself. My uniforms were horrendous. Everybody was walking around with these like big giant balloon pants and like shirts that looked like they were, you know, six X, like not even four, <laughs> like six. I mean, huge. And it just didn't make any logical sense that no one had thought about it. So I started thinking about it and making it better and talking to chefs and being like, what do you love? What do you hate? Tell me how, how would you do it if, if you could make it better? And just being a curious George, as I usually am. And, and then of course, as life would have it, uh, Joseph Santana was like, hey, there's a girl. She's going to make us some aprons. Do you want to buy one? And I was like, chef, wait, I have an apron company. I will make you those aprons. What are you talking about? You got to give me the order. And that was how Headley and Bennett started. And I did not have a company and I didn't have a pattern. I literally had nothing. I just had an idea. I just knew that I could do it. I, mm. I had lived so many experiences and I had committed myself to so many things that I had hit the goals on. That I thought, if I'm telling him I can do this, I can actually do it. And just to clear, Santana was the bar, a Baco Mercat yeah. owner, chef, right? Yep. Um, at the time when you were trying to get that order, did you even have anything made? No. No, I didn't. <laughs> I had a doing business ass. That's all I had. And it, it wasn't even Headley and Ben. It was like something else then. But like, how did you know that you were going to be able to make it? I just knew. <laughs> I just, I, I... I know that if I make a decision, I will figure out how to do it because I've done it enough times that you just sort of earn those notches of confidence in life. Okay, but let's break it down because there's, I'm sure, a ton of people listening now that are thinking, okay, I have an idea. Yeah. And I don't know how the hell I'm going to do it. But, okay, you have the idea for these aprons. Yeah. You have an opportunity to give you give these people the apron. What's like? What's this next step? The immediate next step. What do you do? The immediate next step was I clocked out and I literally called a guy that I worked with and him and I had been talking about the aprons together and we we basically started looking up places that sold fabric. We're like, we need fabric. We need to show him swatches. We need to go find the, the raw material. And I treated it a little bit like I do with cooking, right? You mm -hmm. want to make a recipe. You've never made the recipe before. You go find the raw ingredients, right? You got to find the market. If you're going to make something Persian, go find a Persian market. If you're going to make it Mexican, go and find a Mexican market. Mm -hmm. Find your, your base, right? So I thought about it. I just broke it down, simplified it. I didn't worry about all the intricacies and what if I don't have this plan and all this stuff. I just kind of focused on the basics. And um, from there, I found a friend who could make me a pattern and I hustled him into making me the pattern if I made him dinner because I worked at Providence. So I could like leverage my skill sets here. So then he made me a pattern and then I had another friend and I was like, well, I have a pattern. I will come over and make you breakfast and you better make me the actual sample. And so I was just using what I had and focusing on what I had and not what I didn't have. And I didn't have investors and I didn't have a business plan and I didn't have resources, but I had myself and I had my cooking skills and I knew all of the sort of 
design elements I wanted to add to the apron, not to mention I had Joseph telling me exactly what he wanted to. So it was a collaboration. On what what did he point. want? I mean, like He wanted something that was denim with a little bit of a red accent and he wanted it to fit well and he loved the idea of it being adjustable on the neck because aprons typically back then were not adjustable. Yeah, I was going to ask, like, was it un- like pretty uniform, like the styles? Like, was it pretty standard as far as the... Ours or... No, no, no. Like, just general aprons. Oh, yeah. They were so bad. It was like yeah. poly cotton, you know, polyester blended with mm-hmm. cotton. So starchy and stiff. It was just awful. Like, you could, you know, wash dishes with the, <laughs> yeah. with the material. Like, there was no one, like, bringing creativity to the space. No, the zero. Yeah. Zero. And no creativity and also no branding, no anything. And so he 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 didn't do embroidery, but very quickly after almost every chef I worked with wanted like John and Vinny's, they were like, okay. Like custom. Yeah. yeah, they wanted it custom, they wanted cool denims, they wanted to put their name on it. And we just started to learn how to make these products even better because everything was custom. But early on, did you know that this was going to be big like i know you talk about you know you want the nike for like basically chefs and cooks and yeah for food folks the culinary folks but on day one was that the goal still or was it just i want to figure out how to make an apron and then we'll figure out the rest my goal was make the best apron in the world that was as big or as little as you want to think of it that was the, the like tunnel vision that I had. Make the best apron in the world. And when people hear apron, they think cute. They think grandma's apron. They think shit that's just like honestly not great. And I went the polar opposite direction. And most of my customers at the beginning honestly were men. And you wouldn't think of an apron company having their core consumer be a man, mm-hmm. but they were. And now our business so many years later, and I'm sure you're going to throw me back into the earlier part of the story, but like so many years later, 80% of our business is direct to consumer. Mm. So now we have all these home cooks, people wearing our product because it's legit and real but it's not cute it's proper it's dignified it makes you look legit makes you feel legit and it's actually a tool everyone needs in their own kitchen even though most people are not used to wearing an apron at home right Right. so throwing it back to the earlier part of the story yeah um (laughs) see i knew you were gonna do that (laughs) was the idea that bring it back (laughs) was the idea that you're gonna source this raw material and like knit it like yourself just hand do it no i was gonna find somebody because i don't know how to sew yeah so just how i had found where to get the fabric Mm -hmm. i went and found a guy that knew a guy he was a guy that had made leather shoes and he had worked with this man for one opportunity a really long time ago and he connected me with him and i remember pulling up to the guy's house and it was in the middle of nowhere and there were you know stray dogs running everywhere and old dilapidated like cars in the parking lot and the windows were sort of shattered and in California (laughs) yes this was like in LA and it was pretty shady (laughs) and I walked up and and the guy looked like a drug dealer and that was my guy he was my guy that made I'm an apron dealer (laughs) it was an apron dealer so he made me the first the first batch of Headley and Bennett aprons and he actually had a really aggressive atelier inside of his house outside where all the dogs were running inside it was like a full-blown like workshop and so yeah that was where the first it's like one of those recording occurred. studios i don't know if you've seen them like yes. outside it's like a rundown <laughs> like breaking down house and then you go inside it's like polished studio totally like, million dollars oh no this guy was just old school tailor he yeah. knew what was up and that man made our first batch but you know, he kind of hustled us too, but his sewer, one day as I was walking out, slipped me a note and his it said Jose with his number on it. And Jose, I called him and he was like, hey, I think you're really onto something. This is really interesting. I'd love to come work for you full time and I'll just make you all the aprons you want. I'm doing the work anyway. And then I can make a little more and you can make a little more. And I, I said, okay, let's do it. But at that point, I was still a cook at Providence, Mm -hmm. and I was still working full-time, and now all of a sudden I had this guy who was going to do it out of his house in Compton. And so he became, it was Jose and I against the world for the first, I don't know, seven months. And we went from making, you know, one apron a week to hundreds of aprons a week. And Jose, he just ate, breathed, and like slept on aprons. It was just like the whole world became aprons for us. Wow. Who was buying these aprons? 
I was going to farmer's markets. I was talking to chefs. I, it was very word of mouth and it caught on like wildfire. Like one chef told another chef and then you'd see David Chang wearing it and people were like, well, what's it's that a thing? Small, and small yeah, it's, right? a, it's yeah. a very tight knit community that quite honestly is pretty damn hard to yeah. penetrate. Like yeah. they have their people and they have their people. And it just got out quickly that there was a girl, her name was Ellen. She was this like, apron lady and she'll make you cool shit and she really cares and she's nice and like she's cool just call her and so it was a lot of that where it would be a text message with another chef and a chef would say hey i have a guy he's coming into la you should swing by the restaurant and like bring him an apron or something and then that chef looked cool because he was introducing me to this other chef and it just it just snowballed yeah you know i'm just thinking like the i love this story because you know, even after like hearing hundreds, sort of fifty founders at yep. this point, yeah. After hearing <laughs> hundred fifty founders, it's just incredible that you don't have to go out there and build like a fintech company and like you know get data and, and no hate to, yeah. the, to fintech people. To by fintech, the way. Um, I just you know, learned what fintech was yeah, the other day. Financial like, technology. What the hell is that? Yeah. But anyways, you don't have to go out there and do things that are just like crazy, crazy, like complicated and complex and challenging, yeah. right? And I'm not trying to, you know, diminish what an apron is, but like you can literally make an apron and be like a badass entrepreneur and start amazing companies and employ people. And I mean, that's like all it takes is like literally one idea. And like, I think Pat and I both tell people that like I get people who talk to us all the time, like, hey, you know, what, what's what advice do you have for like starting a business? Right. I'm just like honestly, like come up with one simple idea and then like figure out the rest. Like I'm not, I'm not well, in the right. This position is something that I can imagine. I mean, it's like it's integral to the uniform of a chef, right? It's such yeah. like, or, or just anyone who's like a cook or working on the line. Yep. But I can imagine this was something at the time, or maybe you can tell us: is it was it like an overlooked part of the process? Like, hundred percent. We, we wear this thing; it's so important, but no one's innovating on it. It no was one's practically doing anything. like a post-it. Yeah. Where you're like, what? Why didn't anyone think of putting a little bit of stickiness at the top of it that will make it so much more I actually just read about that story the other yeah, day. Yeah, that's a crazy story. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yes, <laughs> it was very right in front of your face. Yeah. And um, yeah, I think I think to this day people are still like, wait, what? Mm-hmm. It's aprons? But honestly, it was so much more than aprons. What we did is we gave it a heartbeat. We gave it – we gave people a feeling mm-hmm. like – we were not just selling a garment with straps on it that you put on. Like you were a part of this community that believed in making shit happen. And if you wore it in the way that you put on your Jordans and you're like, oh my God, I'm kind of like Michael Jordan. It was that same feeling. Like you were a chef that cared about the details and you were going out of your way to make yourself look and feel better, make your team look and feel better. Therefore, you cared about the details. Instead of going to Cisco to buy your tomatoes, you're going to the Santa Monica Farmer's Market. Like, that was the chef buying and was that Headley your pitch early on? Like, that's exactly what you're saying? Or was that sort of something that you over over time saw that this is what – this is the feeling that we're creating. This is the I type think of emotion. I, I saw it over time. Yeah. Because my pitch was never a pitch. It was more like me being someone else's friend and me – very excitedly sharing something that I was doing with them. Mm -hmm. So I never treated anyone like a transaction. I instead created a bunch of friendships and I was there to help them get something that they needed and we got to collaborate building it together. Mm -hmm. And that was always my approach. And to this day when I'm hiring customer experience team members, like I onboarded somebody today, we take them through our entire brand essence of the company. It's like a 50-page deck that was created by our marketing team. And we talk about how no one is a transaction. I don't care if they're buying a pair of socks or it's a $20,000 order. Like they are a human on the other end of the line and you better make them feel like they had a better day because they interacted with Headley and Bennett. And that's just the ethos of what we're doing. And really it started with the apron, but now it's like morphed into so many other things but at its core the heartbeat is the apron it's this thing that like you put on and then you're ready for action mm. so we won't talk too much about the early days anymore but like as things well, actually sorry i have one more question okay, about the go early for days. 
<laughs> I love the early days. With the early I mean, days. It's all about the early days. It's super important. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm curious. Uh, you know, once these you, you start going to these farmer markets, farmers markets, telling these chefs and they're telling each other. Yeah. How were you able to like like fulfill their orders quickly enough? It was just you and Jose, or like, did you start hiring people like really quickly? Or how it was that... insane. Yeah. It was just you kind of go into warp speed and you're just running really hard and trying to organize as you go while also just dealing with the rush of stuff and not caving. And I think that my time in professional kitchens really helped me have the grit to not give up because when you're in service in a restaurant, you have 70 tickets Mm -hmm. and the chef is yelling and this guy over here is like, where the hell's my dish? And you have five dishes in front of you you have to finish. There's no exit. There's yeah. not like, oh, let was me just... Was it military style? I'm not too familiar. Like where, where you worked? Uh, it was it was, was like... a two Michelin star restaurant, so yeah, it was yeah, about yeah. as well, serious super. as it gets. Providence, yeah, 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 sure. yeah, yeah. Like yeah. Baca Mercado was probably more chill. It was more chill, but still we would have hundreds yeah. of tickets yeah, at, yeah, yeah, in yeah. one it's night. It's craziness, right? It's yeah. insane. <laughs> it's like you're in, a, you're in a team and the ship is going down. You've got to find a way to like pull out all the water from the ship as it's literally sinking and then you get back and at the end of the day you're like woo the ship didn't sink yay but you like almost died five times um so there was that constant feeling and it was almost like this wild adrenaline and i i thrived on it like i loved the feeling of we have a goal and we have to get there so if i had x amount of orders and i only had so much time i really calculated my time of waking up run to Jose's, pick up the fabric first while I'm driving to Jose's. But on my way back, I'm going to get the groceries for the personal chef family that I cook for. And then I'm going to go to Providence and I have to be there by three, but I have 20 minutes while I'm eating lunch so I can squeeze in one um, sales call while I'm eating lunch. And then I'll clock out, I'll clock back in just in enough time so that I can get that one other thing done. And while I'm cooking on the line, I've got my notebook and I'm writing everything down. So it was just this very aggressive volume of multitasking. And my mom always said, you want something done, give it to a busy person. Like I wasn't dicking around ever. I was just moving quick enough that I never stopped to worry about things for too long. Mm. Like I never pondered on stuff for too long. But that kept me kind of pushing to the next one. Um, But did it ever get to a point where you're like strapped, where you're like, you couldn't possibly, you know, carry on and fulfill orders and time unless you started hiring people, which probably required some extra cash to go raise money. Like did that ever happen? Yes. I did not raise money, but I did. I did get to a place where I was drowning and Jose was drowning and we were just drowning in apron straps. And we, I found a girl, she met me at some dinner and literally I was walking to my car in the parking lot and she's like, Hey, what you're doing sounds really interesting. If you ever need help, I'd love to help you. And I was like, do you have time tonight? And she said, (laughs) sure. So she came to my house that night and, uh, Marissa ended up working for me for six years and she was my first employee ever. And, uh, she became our number one sales rep and she's incredible. And, you know, now she works at La Colombe, but it was great this coffee, great coffee. And they actually provide the entire <laughs> office with, with coffee. And now. hopefully they wear your aprons. And they wear our aprons. <laughs> but that was a beautiful kind of kismity moment of someone coming into my life when I really needed them. And she was just in the trenches with me for a long time. Yeah, so I guess now I can move on from the early days. <laughs> well uh, done. We yeah, graduated. I can't, we I can't promise. Yeah, I can't promise. <laughs> I, I don't know, back. guys. I feel like we're going to circle back. I know. We'll probably circle back at one point. Uh, but as things progress, right, you hire your first employee, second employee, third employee. I imagine you eventually get, you know, this warehouse office space. Um, did things get a lot more challenging or it became just more so it was natural for you? to you know be this leader to be this person who is running this company because it's very different to right the early days start the company and then actually and and have an idea and be able to execute on it and then actually be building and growing and scaling it so that it's beyond just like who you are and who like what you do so talk to us a little bit about that experience yes it definitely grew beyond me pretty quickly and uh we started having to hire more people and it became really quite a learning curve for me as a as a founder but also as an entrepreneur because you you now don't know how to do everything but you're responsible for other humans 
right? And so now you have payroll and workers' comp and liabilities attached to that and uh, deadlines and customers. And it just, it grows rapidly. Right. And so I had to get a mosh pit of people that I met along the way that I would ask a lot of questions to and between listening to podcasts on my way to the office um, and trying to find as many strategic employees as I could to help us. But there's no, there's no real simple way to build a business. Like it does not get easier. You just get more resilient over time. You learn how to deal with shit and life and stress better and you find what your strengths are and what your weaknesses are. And at least for me, I just identified what I was good at and tried to get as many people as I could to take on the things that I wasn't as good at. And um, that helped along the way. But I mean, I always talk to my other business owner friends and we, the amount of hockey sticks to the face that you take as a founder or a business owner is just so beyond that it is not for the faint of heart. Like Mm. if you don't actually have a real passion for what you're doing or a genuine purpose, you're better off, honestly, going and being an entrepreneur within a company than starting your own business. You can be an entrepreneur within a company. Right. And and honestly, we need them. Like you need someone who's a self-starter within a company, but <clears throat> owning your own business is not the only way to do it. What were some of those hockey sticks to the face moments? I mean, the list is longer than the successes. Like it's, you only read about the really cool things and you only see it on Fast Company. So you just kind of assume that everything's peachy and roses. But I don't know a single founder, no matter how successful they are, that they've had like an easy journey. Totally. But I'm curious about like your, like some of those moments, like what were those like? Because it's not only like what happened, but more so like the fact that you were able to survive it. Yeah. Um, So... Multiple times, my CFO was like, nobody died, just keep going. So that was just something that she would say to me. So I was like, all right, okay. Um, motto of the day. Nobody yeah, motto, died, motto of the day, was nobody died. Was she one of your died. first hires? She was one of my first – she was my first executive hire. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I was actually reading something recently that like – I think it was about like finance directors or VP finance or CFO. They're like yeah. – as a startup, you should probably hire that as one of your like first roles because you don't realize that you need it until you actually have that person. And how there. many startups fail because they just don't know how to manage yeah. money? Yeah, yeah. no. Yeah. So she, when she came in, we had two outsourced companies, one person in house, but they were kind of out of house too. And the books, all the numbers weren't aligned, and we were making money, but we didn't know how much. It was just <laughs> chaos. And she really helped identify exactly. What were our assets? What were our liabilities? How much money did we have to spend on inventory? How much money was tied in inventory? Things like that. But just the blindness of that was very crippling as a, as a founder because you just didn't know where which direction to go. I just knew we needed to keep making money and we needed to not spend more than we made. So the the things that kept me alive were – don't spend more than you make and like reinvest every penny back into the business that you can. Mm-hmm. And I really just stuck to keeping my word. If we said we were going to deliver at said date, we delivered. And that those were the things that maintained trust no matter what happened. Our vendors knew that we were always going to pay them on time. I had zero debt and I just – I really was diligent about not spending more than I made. Mm-hmm. I'm curious. You know, a lot, one of the – one of the things, you know, you often see in business or like businesses are predicated upon as like this recurring revenue, recurring predict, you know, yeah. recurring customer bases. Yeah. Um, and I'm not too certain how it works. Like does like do, do does the wardrobe need to be replenished like often for for these restaurants? Does it happen? Yeah, like, totally. Yeah. Our So our current customers do about one and a half times a year. Okay. Yeah. So you'll order and then you get more because you have more staff, stuff like that. And that's our, that's really our like restaurant channel, Mm -hmm. right? More, we also included in there our corporate sales and we outfit places like Yahoo and Google and SpaceX and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And we even work with, I mean, companies that you wouldn't expect us to work with, like Discovery Channel and things like that. Mm. We will also make them a lot of gear. Um, And then on the other side, you've got your online 
D2C model. So that's kind of growing in tandem with the other side of the business. Yeah. And um, it's just fascinating because most businesses are either D2C or B2B. They're it's not hard to do both. both. Yeah, it's very hard to do both. Yeah. And so we've found a way to do, mm. do both. I'm curious, you know, obviously before the pandemic and with just everybody going out to restaurants, eating, whatever, there was a lot more people working in restaurants. Yeah. Um, and now that's not necessarily the case, you know, yep. uh, unfortunately, across the country, across the world. Um, has that affected or how has that affected, I should ask, you know, your business when it comes to the B2B side of things where you're dealing with these corporations and restaurant owners who the people aren't necessarily always there? Yeah. So it definitely, when COVID hit, we like saw such a decline in sales towards restaurants. Mm. But pretty immediately after, because we were doing face masks, all of those restaurants needed face masks. So it was like blip down and then skyrocket up because they all needed to be protected. And there's a lot of companies that started making face masks, right? But we were one of the very first ones and we pivoted so rapidly and so aggressively. We were shipping within five days of of the pivot. Plus, like no, I, one wa- no one wants to wear Nike socks and Adidas shoes. Like you gotta, you gotta, you gotta match. <laughs> you gotta it a rep the rep. Yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah, you gotta exactly. be like outfitted out. And <laughs> I'm all over the place today. So <laughs> <laughs> no judgment. I got Adidas, no lemon, and whatever the hell this was. I can't Uniqlo. Remember. Uniqlo. There you go. How'd you know? I, uh, you know, <laughs> I'm a, I'm a shmata. I've been at go. it for eight. There you go. Um, but yeah, no, we, we started making the face mask and I did it with the same damn perspective as I did the first apron. I was like, what do they need? What do they hate? What's wrong with it? And I asked a doctor, not a chef for all that information. And over FaceTime, the day of the shutdown, him and I came up with the design and the next day went live on our website, which was on a Saturday. And on Monday we started making the product and by Wednesday we had shipped. Mm. And to date we have... Jesus, I think we've done close to a million masks and we have donated well over 300,000 masks because we did a buy one, donate one model. When the restaurants kind of got hit, did you see a shift? Because what happened, I think, early on, it's been, I always talk about like early quarantine now. Yeah. Talk about early days now. It's it's March 186 today. It's like EQ, early quarantine. Um, uh, It's like EQ and then Emotional intelligence and. And early quarantine. And there's this PQ, which is pre-quarantine. And then hopefully there's the next PQ, which is post-quarantine. Yeah, Yeah, or TQ, which is thank you. Thank you, bye-bye. But did you see that there was a shift from the B2B to the the B2C side where people started cooking at home? They were baking. I mean, at one point I went to get like chocolate chips and flour for like my fiance and mother-in-law. And like it's gone. Yeah. So it's like. People were going crazy baking and cooking crazy. at home. Banana bread. Yeah, those, banana those. bread, chocolate chip, this ba- and that. Banana bread cookies. was a hit. Yeah, I, I know actually a friend that she quit. Well, she uh, the restaurant stopped you know, functioning. She started a cookie company and now is doing like 10000 One of our listeners is doing like $10,000 a month in cookie sales. Like Amazing. She's killing it, right? Amazing. So did that shift in like consumer behavior that yeah. was forced, yep. how did that affect you guys or what did that do? Yeah, no, it definitely – it forced – the entire company to focus on direct consumer. And while we we for sure had restaurant accounts coming through and wanting face masks, we didn't make a single apron for close to four months. Wow. Like all we made in our entire supply chain were face masks. <laughs> and that was a wild thing that caused focus, but it also created a sense of um, just kind of really reprioritizing, right. right? Any playbook that anyone had pre-COVID just exploded. And you had to look at what was in front of you and what was working, what wasn't working. And we had already had a whole plan of, you know, direct-to-consumer and bringing all of our products to the everyday person because unlike a lot of brands out there, like they're sexy, they have great packaging and all this stuff. And you get the product and it's like subpar. Mm-hmm. For us, we focus on product. We didn't focus on packaging. So you got okay packaging, but our product is fantastic, right? So now it's about balancing it out and making right. it look and feel as amazing as the product actually is right. and educating the home consumer in the same way that we educated the chef eight years ago right. to needing this thing. Right. Um, I'm curious like what you think the future of this space looks like as far as like just restaurants, the food s- services space. 
um, what what have you seen, or like, what do you think is going to happen in the next couple of years? Because we see, we're seeing so many different reports and this and that, yeah. like, of, of and predictions of what people think is going to happen. But I'm just curious what you think. I think that it's not going to look how it's looked like right now for a very long time, multiple years. Like, we're not going to just bounce back to having fine dining everywhere. I think fine dining is has really taken the biggest hit, right? And it's going to be a very serious luxury to be able to do fine dining mm-hmm. at the pace at which we were doing it before where you had a Michelin star, two Michelin star restaurant in every street corner yeah. practically. Um, and a lot of it is going to go to, I think, fast casual and to go and ghost kitchens and things that make it a little bit more remote and the business model of restaurants was just already broken yeah. before COVID. COVID just kind of put the yeah. nail I feel like it's in like the that coffin. In so many key, like education too. Totally. It's, it's like just like fundamentally it, was, broken it was broken spaces. and it took something yeah. as aggressive as COVID to force the reset. Or like accelerate the innovation and the shift. Exactly. And yeah. I think the people I see really doing very well in the space have done dramatic pivots and then another pivot. And by trying and testing different ways right now, no one's judging, right? Right now you, it's kind of the wild, wild West. Nobody's watching. Nobody's judging. If your restaurant closes, nobody is really looking. So you have the opportunity to flip everything on its head because it's already there by the way, and just start trying different things and adapting. Yeah. I think everyone's just trying to figure it out. You're just trying to figure it out and no one's going to blame you for that. Yeah. Like take those risks. Exactly. Does does that mean that like your business is going to shift now to be able to service those folks? I mean, like how, I mean, what does that even look like? For us, I can't tell you what's going to happen. I don't think anyone can tell anybody what's going to happen. Right. I'm like, Oh, let's just wait till November when that happens. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Hold on <laughs> to step, your bootstraps. One step at a time. Yeah. yeah. Um, for us, what we are doing is focusing on just making the product that much better and servicing all the home cooks and educating them and, right. and leaning hard into that. And we used to kind of stretch ourselves thin and do a lot of different things with a lot of different people and lots of collaborations. So for us, it's doing less better, just focusing right. the shit out of Headley and Bennett right. and really analyzing our resources and seeing where do we need to put mm. resources and where do we not. And the things that we don't need to do anymore, we're cutting and we've already cut. So it's allowed us to be laser focused um, in a way that the world forced it. Right. As a founder, how do you continue to educate yourself? Like, you know, even like forget COVID for a second. But yeah. Like, you know, you're obviously always learning. You always have to just iterate your business and yourself and learn new concepts and be aware of what's going on in the world. Like, what do you do? Oh, such a good question. Um, well, I really like to surround myself with people that are even smarter than me. So I'm constantly on calls, meeting other entrepreneurs or if someone sold their company or they've had multiple businesses and I like to pick their brain. Who are some of these mentors, if you don't mind me asking? Um, there's a few. So Dana Cowan, who was the editor-in-chief of Food & Wine for 24 years, longtime mentor of mine. Uh, this other guy, Marty Bailey, who's the chief manufacturing officer of American Apparel, mm-hmm. um, on a um, really brilliant guy and he has taught me so many different things one of the things i love the most that he's taught me that has nothing to do with business but everything to do with business he said say please say thank you and what do you think and that think about that that's just like some basic serious knowledge because if you just remember to say please thank you and what do you think you're kind of making people feel like they're heard making people feel like they're there like they're present they're important and that they matter So just little tidbits like that have stuck with me along the way. Um, And I'm constantly collecting people. I'll go out and meet some old guy and I'm like, oh, my God, you did what? We have to talk. Let's get on a call or let's have coffee or let's go for a walk or whatever. And I have no judgments for where the knowledge comes from. I just want to learn. And so being very open to learning and not saying I already know how to do that. I think that's kind of like a big blocker for some people if they just assume they already know about it so they're not going to hear that thing. Some great suggestions come from lots of different people in my company and they don't even need to be on the executive level to come up with a great idea. You use the word 
early on, like in the podcast. Yeah. Um, Again, going back to the early, well, <laughs> going early days, but early days of the podcast. And that word was colorful. Yeah. Right. And it was, I think, in reference to like your Mexican heritage and just how Mexicans and Mexico are and is. Does that or did that ever play a role in the design of Headley and Bennett and what you make? Like, how does or how did you involve your culture and your roots in this brand? Bringing it down with the good questions. <laughs> I love it. So, Headley was my English grandfather, Bennett is my last name, and Headley and Bennett was uh, inspired by my Mexican and English culture coming together. So proper and sort of timeless and put together combined with whimsical, colorful, fly by the seat of your pants, figure it out, just like alive. And if you look at the style of our company, there is a timeless vibe to it. You know, it's not necessarily trendy. It's just good design. And then you combine that with fun colors and things like that. There's a there's a heartbeat to it. Mm. So that was really always my approach. I wanted I'm playing the long game here. Right. I'm not I'm not about a flash in the pan to be on the cover of Forbes. Like I want a company that's going to exist for a long time and we're 8 years in and I plan to have another 40 ahead of us. So that that to me is success. Like one thing is to grow it, another thing is to like maintain it and you got to be unique and I think color really brings a lot of uniqueness to us as a brand because we we're not everything pastel pink and we're not everything like matte black. Right. We're our own version. We are colorful. We we are technicolor and that's the way we want to be. We want to bring that spunk to people's lives. That's right. why the soul of our Vans and Headley and Bennett collaboration is literally the rainbow outside of our factory. Right. Like the soul matches that rainbow wall. Mm. Well, this has been amazing. I don't know if you have any other questions, but <laughs> no, that, uh, I mean, this is like oh, I'm not going to take it more as, time. As Posh mentioned, we've you know we've interviewed like almost 150 people at, at this point, and this is probably one of my favorite stories that I've heard because there's just so much to like just take away from it and learn from it. And you've built an incredible company, and we can't wait to see what the next 40 years looks like. I just think, um, yeah, you know, it's like 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 you kind of alluded to, you know, it's like a, someone who's into basketball wearing a pair of Jordans and feeling good about themselves. I can imagine it's very similar wearing a Headley and Bennett apron yeah. or whatever and feeling like just so much more powerful and that they could do anything in the kitchen pretty yep. much. Yeah, um, if you see that little red ampersand, that little and patch, yeah. it's yeah. like you're part of a squad. It's right. it's really uh, real. Yeah, we were talking about it earlier because so, we interviewed uh, Chef Tim from Odium mm -hmm. and I think we definitely have seen that like and sign on his thing. Yeah, on, on his, his apron. apron. Yeah, but you know, I was just thinking like just to piggyback off of Pat, you know, it, it would be awesome if one day like in the next 10, 15 years, maybe even earlier, if you just wrote a book of like just put on your apron and you just kind of go through the journey of like these different founders that literally took like one product, like a simple product. I actually wrote just, a book okay. and it comes out next okay. April 2021. Okay. It's called Dream First, Details Later, okay. How to Quit Overthinking It and Make Shit Happen. Love wow. It. Maybe Amazing. we could change the title to like put on your apron, but you know, <laughs> I, won't, I, won't, I won't mess with your publisher there. I'm sure they'll, they'll yeah. kill you if you change hey, the name. Random up. House is going to shut yeah, yeah, it down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that comes out April 2021. April 2021. Okay, yeah. yeah. We'll make sure to read it. Yeah. And, and follow uh, us on Instagram 100%. at Ellen Marie Bennett and Headley and Bennett. Come check out my giant 20, 200 pound pig <laughs> that lives at my house. Yeah, we are we're a colorful, quirky crew over here. Love it. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. This yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks, Ellen.